You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command in the state of Maryland, which is located in the client state of the United States of America because we are evidently a client state of Mexico. We're going to get to that in a minute with our special guest. Um, it is Wednesday, April 24th, and I'm telling you, I've about had it. I'm ready to hang up, uh, hang my coat up for this week. I will be out Thursday, I mean Friday, but tomorrow hopefully will be there, taking a long weekend, which I think I need at this point. Um, but before I just totally combust here on air and bring on our guest, I just want to get out one thought for you to to kind of frame what's going on here. And I know those of you who follow me on Twitter at RM Conservative certainly are aware of what I'm focusing on now. I was recently looking through some essays by Tench Cox. He was a political economist during the founding era. You might call him one of the less relevant founders, but a founder nonetheless. And, you know, I was just reading all of the areas where he said, the states will have full control and the federal government will have no control in this and your internal affairs and what affects your life. Don't worry, this new federal government's not going to be a big deal. And of course, you know, you fast forward 230 years later, and the federal government controls every aspect of our lives and economy. Well, except for the one thing for which we created the federal government to protect us from external, external harm, as, as Madison called it. And when I read that, it, it called to mind. I was like, well, I quoted Tench Cox in my book, Stolen Sovereignty. And I went back to you know, look at the quote, and what was interesting is it was April 20th, 1787, so right before the Constitutional Convention in the summer. And Tench read, he was speaking to a political group in the House of Benjamin Franklin, and he read an essay that he wrote. He actually read from it. And, you know, he observed the, they actually talked about what we would call immigration nowadays. And he observed, obviously, the benefits of filling up an empty frontier um, with people because they badly needed people. But even then, even when they badly needed people, they had a massive frontier that needed to be filled up. They understood that there were deleterious effects of mass migration. And the quote is, quote, it is clear that the present situation of America renders it necessary to promote the influx of people, and it is equally clear that we have a right to restrain that influx whenever it is found likely to prove hurtful to us. And that was laid out literally in Benjamin Franklin's house a couple months before they kicked off the Constitutional Convention. There was always an understanding that immigration would only be used to benefit America, certainly not to harm America, And certainly, we always reserve the power, the right, and prerogative to choke that off. And that was the core of what a federal government to protect the whole of the union would do. 
you know, we've been talking about the last two days, this story of Mexican soldiers, presumed Mexican soldiers, probably working for the cartels, coming on our soil, detaining and disarming our soldiers, and no response, no demand for an apology. I'm glad to see that the president did at least tweet out his outrage, and I suspect he might have seen our work on it. But, you know, the president is more than a blogger. He needs to be commander-in-chief and channel that outrage into policy changes, not just act as if he's a you know private commentator. Um, actually order DHS to change policies, order the military to, to change policies. And we have an article out quoting, among others, our guests we're going to bring in a minute, on the problems inherent in that story. But I might have mentioned it yesterday. There was another story that I... I believe, complements this story. Yesterday, CBP and Yuma put out a video of five heavily armed smugglers, cartel guys, armed with AK-47s and tactical gear, escorting a Central American mother and child to our border with AK-47s. One of them actually steps over the border briefly and goes back. And it's it's nothing that new other than that particular case is weird because, you know, when do you ever have five cartel guys for one Central American woman? So it must be she's a VIP, and that's that's a separate issue. But I'm not even focusing on that. I uh, I contacted CBP, and I said, hey, you know, are you guys putting out a statement? Could you give me more background on this? Um, do you know the identity of this woman? Because it seems quite unusual. And I said, moreover, now that you got these guys on camera, did you go and catch them? Now, he's being a little facetious because I knew they didn't. And, you know, a guy gets back to me and says, hey, you know, I'll, you know, would you give me a call? And I was like, great. Well, it's always good to talk to someone. They usually don't talk to me. And it, w- it was a really frustrating conversation. I mean, the guy was just, you know, and, and I feel bad for him, but it was just a total runaround. And basically what he told me is that you could have 50 cartel guys armed with shoulder-fired rockets. They could come right up to our border and orchestrate a flow of migration into this country. They could even step foot into our country. But the minute they step back over, we will not nab them. They could be standing there with the rockets three inches away from the border. We will not nab them. And when I expressed my frustration, he said, well, Daniel, could you imagine the... um?" The outrage, the the international incident that would be created if we went in there. Um, and I said, yeah, you mean like when the Mexican soldiers just stepped foot on our soil? Um, yeah, there actually wasn't a lot of international outrage. So I guess it's a one-way street. Folks, we've had revolutions over less serious things. You know, taxation without representation, that's nothing. That doesn't hold a candle to the social transformation without representation that is taking place, the lack, the breach of the essence of the social contract laid out in that declaration, the job of the federal government to protect the sovereignty of our nation, and how we just bring in the woman, give her catch and release, will never nab the people orchestrating it, never treat that as a military national security issue while we spend $716 billion a year on the military, $46 billion alone in Afghanistan every year securing the perimeter of Kabul, but we will not secure our perimeter. 
that narrative needs to be articulated. Our founders talked about the fact that you don't abolish a government for light and transient causes. But they said when a long train of abuses and user patients pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government. I, I just, I don't understand what is a worse breach of the social contract. The American people don't matter. What about our credible fear? What about our credible fear? You know, I just see an article right now. Lawyer ties violence in El Salvador to MS-13 murder case in Bedford, North Carolina. I'll get to that another point. I don't want to belabor the time and and, uh, keep our guest holding online. Um, But I am pissed. So I'm so flustered. You've heard enough from me. I want you to get the story about our border, but also about what's going on in Mexico, that Mexico is very close to becoming a complete failed state and what that means for America. I want to bring on Colonel Dan Steiner, retired Air Force veteran, served 34 years in the Air Force. Most importantly to this issue, he was the director of joint operations for the Texas military forces until 2010. Yes, Texas actually has military forces that combines both the National Guard, the Air National Guard, but also their State Guard. They have their own State Guard. And you know, through that, he coordinated operations between Texas and NORTHCOM, exactly the type of military coordination we're talking about now with this case of our soldiers being um, disarmed. There's never going to be a better authority than the colonel. Um, so with that, it is an honor to bring on Colonel Dan Steiner for the first time to the conservative conscience. How you doing, Colonel? I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks for having me. Sorry for the diarrhea of the mouth there. I just, you know, got rolling there and uh, um, really upset. Before we get into the broad stuff about Mexico, do you have any comments about kind of the juxtaposition of these two events? Mexicans allowed to come on our soil, but we can't go anywhere near their soil, even if they're right there with AK-47s invading our country with uh, with migrants. Well, you know, and you know, Jason Jones, a good friend of mine, one of the one of the resident experts on the border from Texas Department of Public Safety, worked narcotics along that border for years. Um, Jason and I were talking, we talk every day, heck, we were talking about two minutes ago. I I will tell you that for the folks that have dealt with the border of Texas, I won't speak for Arizona or anybody else, but the, the folks that have dealt with the border of Texas and Mexico, that type of event has been going on for a long time. Now, why is it that it continues to go on? I guess there's just not a sense of urgency for the people that don't live there or are not stunned by what happened two days ago. Now, it's been a, I don't remember in my experience that we've actually had our people disarmed. I will tell you during Border Star, Back in 2008, we had observation posts that had to, uh, what we call bug out from the observation post because they were being approached. And, you know, the rules were you can't engage them. And, and, and that created an incident for me as the director of joint operations. I, I had to sit down with some people. First, I had to explain it to the adjutant general because he had to go explain it to the governor of the state of Texas. 
But, but I had to go sit down at the operational level and talk to some people and say, you know, what, what in the world are we doing? I, I understand we can't go down there and, and just declare war on the border. Got it. But when we send young men and women down to that area to help the young men and women of Border Patrol and local law enforcement and state law enforcement, we better send them down there with the ability to keep take care of themselves and each other. It's a betrayal to anyone who puts their life on the line on that border not to support them to the greatest extent possible. There are no limits to what we should do to keep those people safe. And, and I, I know this D.C. won't agree with this. Thank God I'm retired. I don't work <laughs> for them anymore. They actually work for me as a citizen of the United States. But as the president said, this better not happen again. You know, if you want to keep crooked Sedina units, and they're there, I mean, unfortunately, they're there. And Sedina is full of patriotic people who are trying hard to keep And, Mexico and just, safe. sorry to interrupt, just for our listeners, Sedina is, is a Mexican defense, Mexican it's the Mexican army. Okay. Yeah. You know, if you want the right message sent to the ones that are in bed with the cartels, to include their bosses, then when that happens again, there's hell to pay to do it. And the only thing you expect on a phone call from Mexico City to D.C. is, I'm sorry, it will never happen again. Not a phone call or not a press statement about, we're deeply concerned about U.S. militias on the border stopping people. This world is upside down, and the people of this country are the ones that are suffering. I mean, I've told you earlier, and you've heard it before, and we could take you to meet the people. But when you sit down, and I've done it, when you sit down with ranchers in Texas, and they look you in the eye, and they tell you they have parts of their ranches, large parts of their ranches, that they won't travel on because of how dangerous it is, what are we saying? Are we just seceding part of our border because it's just too hard to do? Or someone just doesn't want to do it. It, it, To me, that's just, I don't know. I I couldn't accept it then, but, you know, I was in uniform and I saluted smartly and we did the mission to the greatest of our ability. But I will tell you that my bottom line, and I told you this yesterday, was if if we're going to send the people that I'm responsible for down there, you bet they're going to be properly armed and properly equipped and this issue of two soldiers, and I guess you want to get into that in a minute, about how they were armed and where they were and what was going on. If they were placed in that position, there's a problem. If they did that on their own, took a lunch break, snuck down there to go see the border because they've never seen it, who knows? Somebody needs to tell us the truth. But the bottom line is, if you're trying to tell me two, or a group of Sedina soldiers in the middle of the day, not, it's not 2 o'clock in the morning. It's not a blinding rainstorm. It's not Arizona where there's no river. It's Texas. There's the Rio Grande River. Go on Google Maps and look at Clint, Texas, where the river is. I don't, you know, this, well, there's some brushes and some water. If you're a trained soldier and it's daylight and you're supposed to know where you're traveling to by map or GPS, there's no way in hell you didn't know where you were. And I totally agree with Jason that You know, if these guys are running route security for a load or they were collecting intelligence on just how prepared these Army soldiers are from the U.S. on the U.S. side, then there needs to be a price paid for that. 
and someone else needs to decide how to do that. But don't don't sit here and tell people like me and people in the rest of this country, we deserve the truth. The citizens' country deserved the truth. And to tell us that it was a, a point of confusion or misunderstanding, come on. I, I mean, you belittle yourself and you belittle the people that are down there risking their lives by taking that stance. That That's what really bothers me, what you just said. We had a rancher on the show a couple months ago, Jim Chilton, big ranch in Pima County, uh, um, Arizona, going right up to the border. And, and he said you have the Hakones you know, the lookouts right on the hills in his in his ranch with their sophisticated communications and um, uh, surveillance technology. And they know they're there. And no one will hold the line at the border. Now, I don't want to get into the politics of Border Patrol and, you know, their personnel and the fact that they feel that they want to be like other law enforcement. They want to live normal lives in along I-10 I and Tucson. They don't want to live in sleeping bags like they're in Afghanistan at the border. But someone's got to do it. If it's not them, then it needs to be military. And I don't understand. Like, we're not even asking for us to go as far as General Pershing did with Pancho Villa. Okay, we're just saying, first of all, our side of the border, we have the cartel guys operating. But what I don't understand is we could literally they, they, they brag about their surveillance, and evidently they're catching these guys. To me, if we would start nabbing some of these smugglers, nabbing them, and not you know, prosecuting them, and then we would drop leaflets in Mexico, making it very clear that times have changed. We are going after the cartels. We now see the Mexican government will vigorously protest this because they know we're not serious. But if we make it clear inexorably, we are. We are done with the cartels. We are done with the migration. We're shutting it down. No one's allowed in. We're going after the cartels. Wouldn't the people on the fence in Mexico then realize that A, we're stronger than the cartels, B, we're in it for the long run, and C, it's more beneficial for you to work with us than the cartels, whereas now, of course, they're going to be with the cartels because why not? Yeah, and, and, I, and I know you and I talked about this yesterday, Dan, but there's an ugly truth out there. And the ugly truth is the, the, the level of corruption inside of Mexico from the drug business is so intense, so complete that, I, you know, yesterday I drew an analogy of Mexico City is almost like Damascus in 2010. You know, Damascus, Assad family sat there and really didn't give, a, except for maybe Aleppo and some other areas. Damascus didn't care about Syria at all. The Arab Spring came along. Syria caught on fire. And suddenly Damascus comes out of the gates and decides to try and crush what's going on. If you draw an analogy as to the fact that Mexico continues to be socially unstable, when we, when we continually see things like I told you about with the auto defensias coming out of Michoacan, if, if Mexico continues on its current course, then at some point in time, you simply can't ignore what's going to happen. I mean, if we're going to sit there and act like, ah, it's just Mexico, it's always been that way, don't worry about it. And then suddenly Mexico City does something really stupid. And the people 
get punished for it. And the people stand up against the cartels and the government in like a Pancho Villa environment. Then what do we do? You know, we're, we're, we're panicking about 3,000 people coming to the border time. What happens when that's 30,000 or 300,000? You know, what happens if Venezuela goes this same course? You know, Central America is going to keep both gates open, north and south. Those people are going to flow. Mexico is going to keep their gates open. They're going to flow. And so I'm not, I'm not sure what it is we're trying to do to systemically solve the issue. But I can tell you, it's not going to get any better if all we're going to do is make up crazy little stories about how these guys basically just with impunity come back and forth on our border and conduct their operations. Somewhere along the line, somebody needs to get a bloody nose. That, that that's what scares me that there's no deterrent whatsoever and we're not we're not helping anyone um you know you and i are not wacko people um we don't dislike mexicans and in fact we see what is going if you truly understand the issue you understand by the lack of preserving our sovereignty both on the drug and illegal immigrant side you are hurting the mexican people beyond belief and now it's really stark because it's not even the mexicans that are for the most part the illegal immigrants, it's Central Americans being encouraged to go through their territory and empower all sorts of turf wars with cartels, um, w- the worst bloodshed we've ever seen in Mexico. I don't understand for much le- fewer, like much weaker reasons. We have spent trillions and committed ourselves forever to Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a sand dune from the ninth century. They literally cannot hurt us or affect us unless we bring them in through da-da-da-da, immigration, um, <laughs> which we do. and but, but yet this is on our border, in our border, inextricably linked in our major cities. I mean, HSI just had a shootout with those very type of human smugglers carrying AK-47s in Phoenix, not at the border. A couple weeks ago, three HSI agents were shot. Um, and we just refuse to recognize that this is the quintessential national security issue. To me, to me, if we're not going to deal with this, zero out the military budget. Who needs it? Abolish it. I mean, who? if this is not, why won't our government view this? It's not just stopping illegal immigration, which of course we should do, and that, that you could just do by simply applying the laws and just, you know, like, close our border, stop it, stop processing it. But, in, but beyond that, what is it in our government that we refuse to recognize Mexico and what's going on there with the cartels as a strategic warfare sort of threat. Well, you know, Dan, right after 9-11, I, I was at CENTCOM. I'd just come back from the sandbox and I was, uh, I, I jumped, changed hats real quick from operational commander to a planner inside CENTCOM and Northcom came along, and, and, and I got to tell you, Northcom is an institution of patriots and great people. But CENTCOM helped Northcom figure out how to become, and this was an emotional statement. We were standing up a combatant command on the continental United States. And to, to yep. a lot of us, we were sitting there thinking, Okay, is this war on terrorism, is the world deteriorating so much 
that we're going to have a combatant command, not NORTHCOM, not NORAD. Uh, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not, not NORAD, but NORTHCOM, a combatant command on U.S. soil. And, and those folks, when they were first starting up, they were trying to figure out where they're, you know, wh- where's our fields of fire? What is it we, we need to do here? Do we take over JTF-6, Joint Task Force 6? Do we take over JTF South that deals with Central and South America? Where are our, you know, you know, where are our littorial boundaries for what we do? And in, in all those discussions that we were having, Mexico came up time and time again. And I, I know in my heart that the men and women of the United States military, they know what time it is in Mexico. They also know because they work with them. I, I, there are Sedina reps at Norcom. There are men and women in Sedina, in Samar, in the Mexican Federal Police that love Mexico and they're Mexican patriots. And, and I got to tell you, the most beautiful, peaceful city I ever lived in. We were, my family and I were stationed in El Paso for six and a half years. Big Army Airfield. A beautiful city. Hardworking people. So you know this this notion that if you challenge what's going on along the border, then you're a racist or you're anti-Hispanic. That's insane. That's just a cheap way of trying to avoid the the conversation. But there's good people on both sides of this equation. Here's the problem, Dan. The people on the Mexican side of the equation, the, the differential in percentages is alarming. I mean, it's alarming. I mean, you've heard the expression before, plata or plomo. And it seems like all of Mexico runs by this plata or plomo. I want to give you some money or I'm going to give you a bullet in the head. You choose. And so Mexico City seals itself off behind their walls. They take the bribes that they need to take at, at, at all levels. Trust me, it's at all levels. And then they just secede their northern territory to the drug lords. Well, the problem is that Northern Territory touches us. Yep. And if they can't solve their problems, at what point in time do we have to solve them? And if that's an ugly conversation for somebody in the politics, I don't care which party, if that's an ugly conversation, then you better figure it out before we're burying U.S. citizens and they're turning around looking at you going, what in the hell is going on? Right now, it's just ranchers doing that. But like you said, if these guys infiltrate, they get into Atlanta, they push their gangs out. At some point in time, we pay too high of a price for their inability to control what's going on. So, you know, something has to give. Exactly. Here is what I was so frustrated. I've never seen a more hypocritical one-way street. So, Again, they could rape us for decades, and I'm going to use that word. This is the raping of America because, you know, I cover this very closely on the interior of the country as well. And we see a tremendous amount of the the people killed by drugs and gangs in our country, thanks to this, is unbelievable. Nothing in the Middle East, and you know, I'm a a big hawk on, on Islamic terror, but nothing in the Middle East has ever done to us on any level what Mexico has done to us systemically. And by definition, they ceded that northern territory. They don't have control. So the notion that, oh my gosh, Daniel, they could screw our country, but oh, are you we can't go on to their territory. 
what are you talking about? They don't control it. And if anything, we're going to be helping it. So what this what this border agent PIO told me, uh, public information officer, is that, well, so, you know, I, I asked him, I said, like, so what do you do with these bad guys that you see on camera doing this stuff? Well, we work with our Mexican partners. What? I said, there's, there's, there is no Mexican military in the North. And if they are, if there are roving bands of them, they're corrupt. They're working for the cartels. And that's that's what I figure that if we actually here's the bottom line, shouldn't the buffer zone of a first world superpower be on the other side, not on our side? Well, you're cheating on me because you know that I think you know I wrote about that. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> of the buffer zone. Um, let me tell you an ugly story. I'm going to clean it up. You know, I signed my life letter. I know what I can and can't talk about. So let me give you a clean version of a real ugly story. To our south, in some of the military garrisons that they run in remote locations to try and at least hold pieces of property in an area. You know, they, they don't own the whole area. They don't secure the whole area. They're kind of like us in Afghanistan and, and with FOBs. So they have these equivalents of fobs or garrisons, and there have been times where these true patriots of Mexico have had to fight their way in and out of their own fobs. Now, hold on a minute. That's not us fighting in and out of a fob in Iraq or Afghanistan. That's Mexican military members fighting their way in and out of their own location in Mexico, if you get in a car and you drive through Morris and it looks like a really modern city and you're driving along with your kid to go to a show or the park or something, and it's seven o'clock in the morning and you go by an overpass and there's a body or two or three or four bodies hanging upside down, decapitated with a banner on that overpass, what kind of nation are you in? You know, to, to sit there and lie to yourself and say that, you know, Mexico is our sister nation to the South. Mexico is a nation on the edge. And we either start figuring out how to do it right or it's going to fall apart. It will be, as I told you before, it will be Albania. You know, it, it, it will fall apart so fast. You know, once they lose viscosity, it will it will slide into chaos at a pace no one's prepared for. And I, I, it amazes me. And, and I've been amazed. I came home from the war in 2003, and they, they, they tossed me into this job. And I said, okay, what am I doing? And I was doing defense support to civilian authorities. And I was trying to figure that out. I was trying to figure out who the heck NORCOM was. I had met them at CENTCOM, so I, I kind of knew some of the folks. That helped. I, you know, I helped Texas by already knowing some of the folks in this fledgling NORCOM. But once I started really contacting the folks that really know the border, because I had been law enforcement, I was a, a Texas police officer in Fort Worth. And I thought, if I've got to try and figure out how to help the state of Texas law enforcement folks along the border, there's nobody smarter at it than, than the local law enforcement and Texas DPS. My God, the Texas Rangers have been fighting guys on the border since, <laughs> you know, before John Wayne. It, and so it, it amazes me that Yes, we are in a conflict. We are in an we are in an unconventional conflict with an unconventional enemy, and we're not doing well. And I've told you this a couple times now. In my background, I understand one thing: our true enemies, 
our big enemies and other parts of the world, they look for leverage against us. If I want you to pay less attention to Europe, I will start a fire somewhere else. We went through this in the 80s with Central America. If I want you out of the Pacific, I will start a fire somewhere else. Why does this nutcase who replaced Dan, or, uh, Hugo Chavez in, a, in Venezuela, why does he believe he's going to be able to hold on? Because somebody's telling him he's going to hold on. And why do they want him to hold on? Because it's going to create a crisis for us in a region that we don't want to spend any time on. You know, we, we look at the Monroe Doctrine like it's tucked away in a closet somewhere. Yeah. Why, why do you I, – I, I want to come back to Mexico in a minute um, and get to the Russians, Chinese, Russian mob, and talk about the mechanics of the government, where you, you, you see things headed, some of the latest trends. But just real briefly, you know, you also know a tremendous amount about the Middle East, about the whole world from a national security standpoint, based on your experience, CENTCOM. Um, what I don't understand is why is the entire military policy stand uh, establishment, national security policy establishment, both in government, NGOs, everyone, everything is obsessive about the Middle East. And yet when it comes to literally what is affecting us so much more directly, it's like nobody knows or cares or has any any plans, not that we're doing good in the Middle East, but they at least talk about it and obsess about it. You know, when, when I got ready, I was a uh, fairly young lieutenant. I had been enlisted, but I, I was a fairly young lieutenant when Desert Shield kicked off. Saddam went into uh, Kuwait, and we got a phone call at the unit level, and uh, I, I commanded a, a small unit that was in charge of securing the MANPAD footprints around remote airfields for the Air Force. It was called Air Base Ground Defense. It's kind of like the Air Force's infantry. So off we went. We go over there and we land. Um, hell, we didn't know where we were going until we got halfway there. We got gas in Spain. They told us we were going to a place called Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. We actually had to look it up. <laughs> we get on the ground in Jeddah, and, and, and I make a really good friend within a couple of weeks, a guy named uh, Prince Nawaf al-Sad. His mom was the king's oldest sister. Nice kid, really good kid. One night we're sitting there talking. And he says, you know why you're here? You're here because of the oil. You don't, you don't care about Saddam going into Iraq. And I looked him square in the eyes and said, you're absolutely right. Because the oil that comes out of this region affects the day-to-day -day life of the people of my country. And so if you can't keep your proverbial together, <laughs> then yes, we're here for that reason. You, you think I'm going to wear that as a badge of shame that I'm just here because of your oil? You're right. That's exactly why I'm here. And so, you know, the Middle East has had a, a point of interest, you know, beyond the oil industry. There's the religious aspects of Israel and Jerusalem. I, I, I got it. But there's a reason to be concerned about issues in the Middle East. But fighting 17 years with one hand tied behind our back, with all kinds of restrictions on, oh, well, you know, don't release the drone yet until we get authority from six different levels before the drone can go and do its job. Yeah, we're, we're all of the ways that we politically hold back what we do makes what we do very ineffective. 
Hmm. And, and we were, all, we're that way on steroids with Mexico. I mean, we can't, we, we'd rather watch young U.S. troops be humiliated. Uh, can you imagine, Jason, I'm talking about this this morning. Can you imagine the stories those guys are telling once they got back with their buddies about what they did? I, I mean, can you imagine the way they've embellished what they did when they were over here? And how that will entice the rest of them to push the envelope. I, I tell you, if, if I was in charge of those forces along the border, I'd, I'd have my, my Kevlar on. Because, you know, those guys are hotheads and they, they like to outdo each other. And even if it's the Dina guys working for a cartel, the rumor gets out. They've seen the news stories. They think that's cool as hell. Yep. Now, which, what, where's the next knucklehead? that tries to do the same thing. Yeah. So, so what is what are the second and third order effects of what we just semi turned our backs on here two days ago? Wow. No, that 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 is that is a very important uh perspective from the Mexican side and and especially those working for the cartels, they obviously make a lot more money doing that than getting paid by the Mexican government. Um you know so I wanted to go into let's just start off with when I tell people, you know, Mexico is on the cusp of being a failed narco state, you know, most people would laugh at me. Daniel, it already is a failed narco state. So when you say it's on the edge, it's hanging by a thread, what signs and what 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 is happening that's different the last year or two versus the last couple of decades? Well, uh, you and I talked a couple of days ago. There's a very interesting character down there. His name is Dr. Morales. Back in 2000, and I think it was 13, I was sitting, you know, from 2010 to 2014, I retired. I, I was in a different position that we won't speak about. Um, in that position, one day we were sitting there looking at, you know, the provincial, uh, the proverbial traffic. And I started reading both in the open and in the dark world about this guy, Dr. Morales, and this auto defensia, they call themselves, out of Michoacan, Mexico. And a couple of us have said to ourselves, hey, hey, if you sick Sedina on the streets, if you try and replace the police departments of Mexico, especially northern Mexico, with the military, then that's just another indicator of how desperate Mexico City is getting to try and hold things together. It, it was going to be a disaster from day one that you took a combative force and put them on the streets day in, day out to replicate a police force because the civilians no longer trusted the state police or the local police. So those were huge indicators, you know, and that was 13. It had been going on really since about 2008 that we really drew our attention to the Sedina forces coming out. But, but those in 13, we saw our first real repercussion of that, and that was Dr. Morales. And Dr. Morales stands up a group of farmers who decide, you know, the hell with this. We can't trust the local police. The government won't do anything about what's going on. We're going to arm our own people, and we're going to protect our own towns. Sounds like our militias. <laughs> well, the next thing you know, predictably, the Mexican government behind their gates in Mexico City, 
they begin to fear these auto defensives more than they fear the cartels. They have rules of engagement and, and agreements with the cartels, kind of like what they're trying to do now with the new president. Of, you know, I'm not going to talk about you. You guys just don't make it too ugly for me. Well, then they, what they really feared were the auto defensives because the auto defensives showed Mexico City that the people of Mexico were getting sick of it. And I, and I was wrong. But I really predicted in 2011 that the Arab Spring, a version of the Arab Spring, was going to light off in Mexico because you had all the right ingredients. You had a public that was suppressed. You had a public that felt like there was nowhere to turn. And you had a government that was completely corrupt and out of touch. Those are pretty good indicators for a, for a problem. These auto defensias are still out there. Auto defensias is in private militias. Private militias. And five days ago, Jason sends me an article and says, hey, look at this. You've always told me to be on the lookout for an auto defensia that starts to stand up inside of Mexico City. So the bastion of security is Mexico City. They've seceded the rest of the country. I remember when we were amazed they seceded uh, Monterey. We, We couldn't believe it, but they did. Now you have one threatening to stand up inside of Mexico City. So the fire is inside the gates now. So so wait, wait, you're you're saying that essentially they always ceded the north and and the west for quite a while. Um they've ceded the m- much of the Chiapas and then their southern border with Guatemala and the eastern resort towns which they used to really guard heavily because they relied on the tourism. Now uh you know Acapulco and um uh Cancun have fallen. No one could travel there. Um, but Mexico City is, as you're saying, it's pretty much Mexico City, and now there's signs that that's burning. Right. I mean, their their ultimate fallback position was Mexico City. As, as long as you didn't have people hanging upside down with their heads cut off from overpasses in Mexico City, it was all survivable. Because, you know, the banks are in Mexico City, the money's in Mexico City, and the city government's in Mexico City. Now, something has taken place to where auto defensia groups have threatened to stand up inside of Mexico City. And they only stand up because they're sick of the corruption and they're sick of the violence that won't stop. And and Mexico was clever. You know, at some points in time, the Mexican government decided they were going to infiltrate the auto defensia. They were going to the cartels were going to replicate them to try and destroy their reputation. They even threw Dr. Morales in, in prison and probably really did their best to kill him while he was in prison. Well, they crashed an airplane he was flying in once he was in custody. But, you know, unfortunately, the guy survived. So they put him in prison, and then the social pressure kept cooking. And about, I think about a year and a half, two years ago, they finally let him back out, and he's still alive. Now, is he the quintessential leader of a revolution in Mexico? Not yet. But him or someone like him is what Mexico City is scared to death of. I don't think they're scared to death of the cartels at all. As long as the U.S. media and the government won't make a big deal of it, they'll just drive on and let the people of Mexico suffer. But when the auto is and the people start to stand up against Mexico City, they've got a huge problem. So... If you want to say it was just Mexico and everything's the way it's going to be and it's always been that way, then when it's 300,000 people coming against Del Rio, 
what are you going to do? What's the plan? And here comes the whole issue, like I wrote about yesterday, this whole issue of a buffer zone. So you're, you're spot on. We could ignore this until we can't ignore it. And then it's a crisis. Why are we going down that road? Yeah, and we were, we're going to link to your um, stuff, your blog, um, colonel.dansviewpoint.blogspot.com. I'll put that in the show notes. What I, I mean, this is why I was so incredulous when this border agent told me that, oh, yeah, we rely on our Mexican partners. <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't understand that. I mean, they, they don't exist in the North, even if they're, you know, even if you think you could work with them. And, you know, there's just nothing there. So I, I, I guess my question is this we've seen this a lot. We've done a lot of shows on this last year with our, Latin American expert Joseph Humeyer about um, this formula of China, Russia, Iran, sometimes others like Turkey, coming in and engaging in subversion. Uh, Venezuela is the the prime example, but you see it all over Latin America. Um, the Bolivian leader is a, is a problem. Um, you see it in Nicaragua. Certainly, the very involved. Really, even even in the Northern Triangle. How much Russian-Chinese involvement do you have in Mexico City? And what do you think Putin, the Russian mob, what are they doing? And are they hooked in with the cartels? Are they orchestrating any of this? Well, it, you know, it's, and, and here we go. I signed my life letter, so I don't want the, you know, <laughs> the black uh, crown vicks pulling up in front of my house. So um, I, I, let, let's look at it this way. Let's take a step back and talk about it. If, like I said earlier, if you have an enemy and that enemy is trying to influence your impact to them somewhere else, it's logical, absolutely logical, and it's historically accurate that they will produce a counter pressure against you. Now, it is open source that how much Hezbollah has played around in Central and South America, the Golden Triangle area, Mexico. So it, it's pretty obvious Hezbollah is a puppet of Tehran, of the Iranians, of the Mullahs. And there's this supposed bromance between the Russians and the Iranians. Well, in reality, I, I, I guarantee you, Putin sees Iran as a proxy fighter and a puppet. And the, and the day he doesn't need them anymore is the day they'll swim with the fishes. But are they involved in trying to disrupt and destabilize things that we cannot ignore on our own border? Absolutely. How could they not be? I mean, why would they not be? They're absolutely the worst defenders of their cause if they don't. So, you know, the shorter answer is yes, everybody's there. I mean, there's a guy sitting in power in Venezuela right now because someone has convinced him that he can stay there, that he can wait this out. He's the sod. He can sit inside his walls, form up his new little you know, National Guard, you name it. Hugo Chavez formed him up because he didn't really trust his own military. So you got all these old men that look like they came out from underneath the viaduct, suddenly run around marching, saying they're going to protect Venezuela from the U.S. to their death. Well, all of that is just a game to buy time. But you're not that confident. He hasn't jumped on a plane full of gold. Well, he moved the gold. 
in case he does have to jump on the plane. He's not completely stupid. He moved, but he's going to sit there because someone's told him he can ride it out. Who is that? Who has made him so confident he can ride this out? So if you put two and two together, that's what's going on. Okay, so that's that's Russia, China. Um, I want to talk about the Quds Force, Hezbollah more, and the SIA issue, the Islamic issue. So, you know, to be clear, and we've covered this very thoroughly, if an Islamic terrorist never existed in the entire world, we, you know, we, we more than have enough of a problem with illegal immigration, with the cartels, with the drugs, with all the stuff, you know, from Mexico. But isn't there, in fact, also an Islamic angle that, you know, people don't realize that from two ends, both from a statecraft and a demographic end, there's a lot of there's a growing Muslim population, in many, many Latin American countries, Venezuela being the biggest. But you got obviously the tri-state border in Argentina, um, Brazil and Paraguay. You got um, even in Central America, um, you know, growing presence. You got in the Chiapas in Mexico. Um, but then you have an statecraft level where Iran and Hezbollah are directly involved in their, I mean, their, their operation was so big in Latin America that the number one request of the Iranians of Obama in order to sign the Iranian nuclear deal was to shut down Operation Cassandra going after Hezbollah in Latin America. So you see how important that operation was to them. Um, I've always I have a lot of information on Latin America and Hezbollah and all that, but what always the trail always runs cold when you get far north to Mexico. Do you have information for our audience you could speak about as to if and to what degree Hezbollah Quds Force is involved with cartels, with some of the SIA smuggling of Middle Easterners? Because we do see an influx, a growing number, the last couple of years since the collapse in the Middle East. Um, coming from those parts of the world. Can you speak a little bit about that on the record? Yeah. And again, let me be, let me be cautious. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and tell a story without getting those cars pulling up in front of my house. If you remember right after nine 11, the premise of the story was there's no way the cartels will allow the terrorists to come across the border. You know, we shut the borders down after 9-11 because we were fairly concerned that, okay, they're just going to come across the border out of Mexico, start lighting off dirty bombs in El Paso and other places. And so we got deeply concerned about the border after 9-11. Well, the, the problem was the, the, knee, the knee-jerk reaction way we did that, we backed up tractor trailers for you know tens of thousands. Well, pretty soon the, the cries went out, hey, we, we can't do this unless you've got an actionable threat. We can't do it this way for too long. And the argument became, look, if you're worried about the cartels helping these guys come across the border, why in the hell would the cartels knowingly help a terrorist come across the border Knowing that if they did that now, especially now, right after 9-11, all hell would break loose. I mean, you'd have Delta Force, you'd have, you'd have every black ops killer we had down there. You'd have drones, we'd be hitting safe houses. We would have we knocked the hell out of it. And so the argument was, well, that's why it won't happen, because the cartels won't let it happen. And, and, and a couple of us, me included, 
we sat there and we looked around. I was out in El Paso. I was getting ready. We were already back from one deployment, getting ready to do another one. And, and I, I listened to that argument with some DEA guys that were friends with the uh, the board patrol guys that were, and customs that worked the bridges in El Paso. And I said, have you guys worked in the Middle East? I mean, have, have you actually like hung out on the streets in the Middle East and, and shot the shit in civilian? I mean, I mean, really, I, do you really know what you're talking about? Because if, if I'm an Islamic terrorist and my intent is to bring a package into the United States and do harm, do you think I'm going to tell the drug cartel guys who I am? Exactly. I'm going to learn Spanish. I'm going to look just like you, or I'm going to look like a Filipino or something. I'm not going to tell you who I am. And I guarantee you, if I'm paying enough money, they're not going to ask. So the, that whole premise fell apart because why in the hell would the terrorists tell the drug cartel guys who they really were? And it was, it was illogical. But, but the standard was, it can't happen because the cartels won't let it happen. <laughs> and, you know, and I sat there and thought, well, you know, my God, I used to hear stories about how we let the mob protect New York Harbor during World War II. What the hell are we talking about? You know, what I, what I find astounding, I mean, first of all, you have several hundred thousand Arabs or people of Arab descent just in Venezuela alone. A lot of people don't realize that. So it's not just, you know, Muhammad becomes Miguel. It's literally Muhammad is Miguel. Um, the VP, now he's, uh, I guess, uh, interior minister of Venezuela, um, Al-Asiami, um, <laughs> very uh, Hispanic-sounding name. I mean, he's of Syrian descent, and there's a lot of people they could recruit from there. But what what really struck to me, and I, I just want to see if this is the scenario you're talking about, is that last year there were two comments made when Trump, shortly after Trump pulled out of the Iran deal. Number one, um, Hassani, this is more recent, uh, gave a speech at an anti-terrorism conference, and he said the West is going to suffer from drugs, migrants, terrorism. Think about that. Very, very interesting. Drugs, migrants, terrorism. And number two, um, Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force, he responded immediately when Trump pulled out of the Iran deal, and he said, we are closer to you than you think. And to me, I thought this. We know from Border Patrol, this is publicly on the record, that they're catching people from up to 50 countries now in the Rio Grande Valley and, you know, among other places. And they've enumerated Turkey, Egypt, Yemen, Afghanistan, you name it, you name it. If on Iran, there's an endless number of radical nutcases willing to die for their cause that are not, there's no Interpol hit out for them. There's no known, you know, they haven't struck yet. They're not known terrorists until they strike the first time. I would recruit one of them go on a number of these routes to fly into Brazil that go through the routes up to, you know, Costa Rica and Panama and into, you know, come with, come with the caravans or privately and you claim credible fear and you get catch and release. Meaning, so not only are there the people we're not catching that they could sneak in while a border patrol is tied down with the migration and they know that, but the people that, I mean, downright catch and release and there won't be a, a paper trail on them. Is that, is that, is that something that concerns you as well? Well, you know, if you know the Middle East, then the, you, you, you realize how people over there love to make statements where you have to read between the lines. Solomon and the Cud Force guy, he's the guy. It, it, when you talk about Iran, 
you can name any general lawyer you want to name. You know, I, this, it fascinates me, this whole uh, gyration that's going on with the IRGC right now and trying to put them underneath the Iranian regular army. Good luck. They hate each other. Um, but the people over there love to talk between the lines. And so you, you just nailed it. When I saw him make that statement, and I guarantee you a whole lot of people that have dealt with that area and people in the IC community and just smart people who watch the world, they heard that and they said, okay, you're being a smart ass. You like to be a smart ass. You're being a smart ass. So what do you really say? No, so you're spot on. I mean, that's a threat that's made because he knows he can back it up. Yeah. I mean, and the entire world knows that we are now letting in everyone openly who we see. By the way, I have news that I'm going to talk about more tomorrow. Um, the deputy chief patrol agent of the Yuma sector actually said on a Fox show two days ago, a lot of people missed it. Um, a friend of mine sent it to me. This is deputy chief Carl Landrum. Only 6% of those coming in at Yuma are, are even claiming a credible fear. Unbelievable. And yet we're still letting in people. Our, our government right now is vitiating the Immigration Nationality Act. They're vitiating our laws. All of these people belong in expedited removal. Um, those asserting credible fear, which is evidently only 6%, um, should be immediately turned down, and they only have seven days for an appeal, and then they're placed back in expedited removal, and that is it. Um, that is the law. And they must be, shall be detained, shall be detained, 8 U.S.C. 1225. We don't follow that. But what I'm saying is it's also known that 60% of our agents are tied down serving as the private NGO for Central America. The transportation, the bed and breakfast, the hospital visits, you name it, the processing. And the cartels are now making a business using the pawns, the 4,000s, to get in the 10,000s, right? So they'll... um. The people that are just going to surrender straight to the agents, they pay them, they, they charge 4000 And then while they're tying down the agents, they charge 10000 to get in You know, people, let's say, that are previously deported, so they don't want to meet an agent because they'll see their criminal record, they have an Interpol hit or something like that, um, SIA, maybe some SIAs, they let them in You know, down downfield in the ranches and the remote areas. Iran knows that. I mean, <laughs> they know that our border is a joke. They know that the president, despite his tweeting, those tweets are not becoming policy. And in fact, it's worse off than under Obama. I, I mean, to me, they'd be stupid not to get in their operatives now. Yeah. And, and, well, the other question becomes, <laughs> tactically, if, you know, if, from, a, from a tactician's viewpoint, do you have to ask yourself as a defender, does your opponent need to get anybody else in? Are they past the phase of infiltration? You know, if you sit there and think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm guarding the wire um, because I think the threat of someone coming through the wire is increasing, your assumption is, is that they're not already behind the wire. And usually the worst failures come from when they already are behind the wire. I mean, the reason you check the third country nationals and our forward operating bases in the Middle East so extensively is because you let them in every day. They come <laughs> clean the chow halls. They come do all the things that you need them to do. And, and so I think one of the danger zones is, is when we assume that they're not here yet, 
somebody, and I know the FBI thinks this way, somebody has to assume they're here. Oh, they are. And when Soleimani makes that kind of comment, he could easily be meaning, you know, I'm closer than you think, not Juarez, I'm closer than you think D.C., or I'm closer than you think St. Louis. Uh, the, oh, the, guy oh. Is, oh, yeah. the guy is an amazing, condescending kind of guy, but that comment, you, you nailed it. That guy made that comment for a reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Todd Benzman. He's a friend of Jason's. Um, they work together at, uh, t- at Texas DPS. So he's a big writer now. And um, he wrote a whole article on Unit 910 of Hezbollah. Um, there's a trial, Karani trial, that's set for it, – it's, it's supposed to be going on. I have to check what's going on now, um, what the latest with that is. But he read the FBI um, – you know, usually those parts are blacked out, but they actually had it all public. It was unbelievable. And there's evidently hundreds of people like Karani that are um, trained in cloak and dagger tactics. So they're not just like fundraisers, you know, with the used cars, that whole circuitous operation with Hezbollah, used cars, cocaine trade in Europe, coming back here, um, used car lots in Western Africa. Our buddy Derek Moss, former head of DASOD, was on the show, talked a lot about that. But um, downright the trained in cloak and dagger tech uh, t- tactics. So this guy Ali Karani was, um, according to FBI three hundred two, which was all made public, and he um, Todd published this. Ali Karani was while he was being naturalized as a U.S. citizen. So we let these guys through the front door too. It's not just the border. Um, he was going back to Lebanon and getting training, and he was surveilling Jewish businesses, military targets in New York city. Um, so that trial is ongoing and I, I you know, we got to update people, but, um, I, w- I was shocked this unit nine ten business. So you're right They're They're in our country. I mean, uh, after nine 11, we had a great idea. Let's go and double our immigration from the middle East. You know, like we, we took an inherent immigration problem, which is what it was. I mean, no one came, there wasn't a military or an air force from Afghanistan that attacked us like, like J- Japan and Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, we let them in through immigration, and then we're like, hey, let's continue to have an open border. Oh, and let's double our visas from Iran and Afghanistan and these places, and that's a great idea. So you're right. I mean, we've crossed that threshold. There's an unlimited number of these people they have um, in these communities that could be turned on, and you know, at this point, it's a homeland investigation problem. Um I, you know, I don't know if you have any comment on that, you know, unit nine ten or whatever, but you know, before we close up shop. Yeah, well, you know, your I think your initial question was, how are some of our larger, more well known, and I just call them enemies because right now that's what they are to us, although they shouldn't be. At some point in time, a couple teams better team up together and start preparing for that dragon to come flying over our our skyline because that's going to come uh unfortunately my sons are going to see the day when we can talk about the middle east all we want we can talk about all these things but if we can't get the you know the chinese to implode internally the day is going to come through the belt and road initiative you name whatever cover story they got going the the real quintessential change and fall of the west will come from that big dragon flying um but are people trying to destabilize us to our southern border? And are they using their proxy fighters like Iran, Hezbollah, uh, 
and some of these other wacko fundamentalists. Sure. Yeah. Well, again, why would they not do that? What what just drives me nuts is is we know this, and and are we so politically sensitive about saying close the southern border, close the door? You know this this whole. Don't build the wall. You know, I'm 19 years old. I'm on the University of Texas campus, and I'm really angry at Trump because he wants to build a wall. Shut up and sit down or go down to the border on a mid, uh, uh, work at midnight, stay along the river and drive up and down the river in a brand new pickup truck and see how long it is before somebody takes that truck from you. You know, you know it's, it, it's, a, it's amazing to me. But these underlying currents that just make us consistently ignore what's going on. And, you know, I used to always get this, Dan. I used to get this, look, we're, we're dealing with this. It's just, it's, it's off the radar. And then I go back and talk to the DEA guys that are in Mexico, and they go, off the radar, my ass, we ain't doing anything. <laughs> you know, that's just the way of making your boss think that you're doing your job. And that, that's what I was wondering, because I would be terrified now if I'm a DEA guy, and we got a lot of them operating within Mexico, um, given what's going on and the fact that the Mexican government has less control than ever. Well, yeah. I mean, they, when, they, when they killed Kinky, we kicked them in the teeth. And, and we, we had an initiative going with them. I mean, we made it perfectly clear to them. We didn't talk to them about it. We went in there and we kicked them square in the teeth because of what they did. The problem but, was we didn't follow up on it. We didn't follow up. And, th- and then when we had the ICE agent... Uh, Zapata killed in 2011. We did nothing about it. Well, yeah, I, I think you look at what year that happened, and I think that's almost <laughs> self-explanatory from a DC standpoint. <laughs> that's true. Um, uh, one more question before we go. Um, so, what are the tripwires? What what should people look for to know that we have a Venezuela situation in Mexico? What what would we start seeing? Well. I know Jason's going to blow up my uh, my message box here in a minute, but but here it goes. If I had to say to you from my foxhole, here's what we better start worrying about. You, you, if there are fires starting to burn in Mexico City, then we better get ready for Mexico going in a whole different direction. I can remember, Dan, and it's not that long ago. It's not even 10 years ago when it was absolutely outrageous to believe that the drug cartel guys would hang people from bridges or put heads in boxes or block off roads while they had 45 and 50 minutes to stay in gunfights with homemade armored vehicles in Monterey. It was, it was insane to think that would happen to Monterey. That was the industrial capital of Mexico and it was never going to happen there. Well, guess what? It happened. I mean, the real last bastion of where Mexico can just sit and ignore the rest of their country is Mexico City. So the thing that people need to pay attention to is what is the day-to-day rhythms of Mexico City? And there's a couple blog sites there. I, I just absolutely love them. There's that Borderland beat. You know, Jason and I watch that one. Jason's got a couple others. I mean, there, there's some real patriots down there in Mexico who are sticking their heads out a long, long ways just to report on what's going on. They're, and, you know, they're not getting paid. They're just, you know, they're bloggers and they're, they're people on the streets. 
and they're getting killed constantly. I mean, they're getting thrown in the meat grinder, but they're painting a picture that we need to pay attention to. Now, if we don't pay attention to it, shame on us because it's coming. And, and I think Mexico City is the key. I mean, what else can they give up? Are they gonna? Where else can they back up to if they continue? The, the cartels think they own Mexico City until another cartel says, no, I want to own Mexico City. It's what happens in Juarez, and it, it happens in all their major cities. Sure. That's sure. a what, danger zone. Sure. I mean, if you see, like, you know, the Gulf and the Zetas, what they're, you know, fighting over in Nuevo Leon, um, if that happens in Mexico City, it's game over. Um, you know. Right. And, and then you got right on the fringe of all that, you've got the auto defensive. As the public continues to grow more discontent, you know, they're all happy about the new president. He's a nice Teletubby socialist, gets on TV every day, gives a talk show, tries to convince the Mexican people that everything's great. Problem is, they're already ahead of their murder rates for last year, and last year was their record year. <laughs> so you, you, you can't hold press conferences every day and expect to solve the problem. You can't talk your way out of what's going on. When the people lose faith in the guy they thought was their savior, which direction are they going to go? They typically go with the hard ass. And then here comes your next Pancho Villa. Also, um, just connected to that, do you see a scenario where the people of Mexico rebel over the migration itself? Because now the migration is not primarily the Mexicans. It's foreigners in their land traversing their land, committing crimes, causing social problems. And you know, there, even the New York Times is an article out on that uh, a couple of days ago. Do you see that as a trend that could you know, tripwire this? Well, you and I talked about this yesterday, that Mexico City has always had an opinion of social pressure relief. The, the way you keep people from banging on your door and having an Arab Spring type of event against your government is the people that are mad with what you do are allowed to leave. You know, you sit there and instead of saying, I'm going to I'm going to sick the military, the police on you. You simply tell them, hey, there's great jobs in the United States. Go to the United States and then send some money back to your families here into our banks, by the way, into the Mexican banks. And so they've always had this social relief valve of our wide open border. If you don't think that the Mexican government panicked when Trump said, I'm closing the border, because what happens? Then that pressure cooker starts to go up. And if that pressure cooker goes up and they can't let those people go somewhere else, then they march on Mexico City. When guys like Dr. Morales start to philosophically teen up with the 20-year-old dreamers on the campuses in Mexico, you got a real issue. You, you've got a Mexican Arab Spring. Very well said. And uh, just at a time here, got to do a media hit. Um, this was extremely enlightening. I'd love to bring you back to talk about a range of topics because you're, you're an expert on you know, a lot of areas of national security in the world, not just not just Mexico, but certainly to follow up on this. Anytime you feel you have something that's not, you know, being addressed, please, please call me up. Come back on. I'm sure my audience will eat this up. Um, you could send me dharowitz at blazemedia.com your questions for the colonel. Um, I could ask him offline. I could bring him back. We could talk about this again. 
um, truly terrific uh, briefing today. Uh, thank you and God bless. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome, Dan. Hey, when you get a chance, let's talk about the IRGC because that there's some craziness going on there. That will be part two of this. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Colonel Dan Steiner, um, our new national security expert for the conservative conscience. God bless y'all. Till tomorrow. This is a, has been another episode of the conservative conscience. 